On today's episode, I talk to Gareth Dunlop, a former agency owner, web developer, and founder who scaled his agency over nine years before selling it during the pandemic. He's got some great insight on the importance of building a healthy culture within a company, whilst emphasizing profitability and high-value customers, and some tales from the trenches about the complexities of integration following a sale. Hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Gareth, Gareth Dunlop. I am a long-time agency guy. I was part of a web agency for 13 years, which I ran and led for eight and a half, and which we sold in the late noughties. And then I, I went round the track again, set up a UX business in 2011, and led and grew it for 10 years from 2011 to 2021, when I sold it in May 2021, in the middle of lockdown. Probably like a lot of people, I sort of stumbled into agency life circuitously. But once I got there, quite enjoyed it for all its crazy highs and lows. And kind of got into the web at the very start, sort of the mid-90s, and haven't really left. So that's kind of it. Okay. So that first web agency then, you didn't found that, but you came on board and ran it. Is that right? Yes, that's how I might present it in LinkedIn. But uh, I suppose the reality was a little bit noisier and more ambiguous than that. But it was the summer of 97. I'd been living in Dublin. I'd worked on a project for my employer, AIB Bank, which became Ireland's first online personal banking platform. That kind of got me hooked on the internet. And then I had a chance to join a small web agency in that summer. So I remember joining as a programmer. I'm still kind of a recovering programmer when I think about it. So I joined as a programmer. There were four in the business. I signed a six-month contract and it kind of took me 13 years to escape. They let me out in the end for bad behaviour or good behaviour, whichever. So the business grew to, to 55 people. And, and as I say, I led it for eight. And along the way, there were a few, let's say the cap table kind of shifted a bit during the time that I was there. And, and over that period, I'd become a, a minority shareholder in the business. So that was kind of a, my first go kind of around the track, being responsible for growing and ultimately selling the business. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So was there one founder, two founders originally? Oh, with that business? Yeah. So that business had been founded about six months before I joined. There were three or four founders. There were a couple of corporate guys who kind of brought some business sense to it. And there were a couple of kind of technically talented kids who'd been playing with building websites. And they kind of all came together under this umbrella. So, yeah. Okay. Talk to me a little bit about how the sale came about. What was the motivation? Did you take it to market or were you approached? Well, you know, I want to be careful about maybe taking some credit for the sale, but not more than I deserve. So, you know, I, I look back at that period. Our chairman at the time was a proper old school chairman. At the time I would have been, you know, I joined, I was maybe 26, stayed there till I was nearly 40. And, you know, it was just, if you want to get someone to kind of put some commercial manners on you between those important years as you learn how a business works, I kind of had a ringside seat as my chairman on a monthly basis reminded me that margins weren't high enough, sales weren't good enough, all the stuff that, you know, a chairman will do. So some people will kind of, crack under that and say, you know, when is enough enough? But actually I was competitive enough to kind of be up for the challenge. So he would have done lots of work in preparing the way. We had actually, myself and a couple of other lesser shareholders, the year before we ultimately sold, we had made an attempt to actually buy the whole business ourselves. So there was an attempted, ultimately failed management buyout in about 06, 07. So I think the message that that would have sent the majority shareholder was that, you know, you have a management team here who are ambitious to crack on who maybe want to do something for themselves and may not be around forever if something hasn't worked out. So that was kind of the catalyst 
Now, what then happened actually was that a small number of months after that, we then actually started getting interest and offers from, from others. Now, it was never confirmed to me, but it wouldn't surprise me if that had been a result of our chairman maybe saying, you know, something needs to change here. I've got an offer from these lads. I'm going to go and have a look and see if there's other offers elsewhere. And ultimately, there were. And that ultimately, actually, the offers that emerged were from people who had deeper pockets than we would have had at the time. So that was the direction we went in. Okay, so I'm interested. Were you MD at the time? Yes. Was that your yeah. role? Okay. So I'm sort of interested from your perspective, you were a minority shareholder and the MD of that business. How was the sale process for you? And how was the subsequent sort of integration after that, the change of ownership? First of all, I think I go back to the learning. So, I mean, I had an integral role in the sales process. I wouldn't say, well, do you know, actually what happened was that when a preferred bidder came along and, and ultimately we were bought by UTV PLC and that unit was then subsequently sold to News UK. But as UTV became the preferred bidder, what actually happened was the sales process almost split into two. Our chairman would have led the charge with his business contacts, who would have been about 20 years more senior than I would have been at the time, and ultimately involved you know, the MD and the commercial director of UTV. And then I would have been sort of in a parallel track. I would have been kind of building things out with the guy who headed up digital in the business. And he subsequently became my boss. So in a sense, he and I were thinking about how it was going to work operationally. And bits of the deal and bits of the integration part were being done at a, at a slightly higher level. From a personal perspective, um, mm-hmm. Barnaby, I really quite enjoyed the process. Certainly, I think the fact that we had tried to buy the business in 2007 was a sign that change was needed. The business had grown well and was doing commercially well, but there was definitely a, maybe an, an impatience or a desire amongst the management team to really do something with the business. So something needed to change, and this felt like as good an opportunity for change as any other. And I'm interested in how you were incentivized to stay after the change of ownership, because I think that's always a key thing for buyers is how are the management team incentivized? Are they going to stick around? Because if they don't, then that's a big risk for any acquisition. So how did your sort of contract change after the sale? Well, read into this what you will, but I did get a new contract of employment, but there was nothing there that had any form of lock-in, which is crazy. But when I looked at the alternatives and when I looked at the deal and the younger version of me got a few pounds and you know, all that sort of stuff, I went into that thinking UTV had a series of digital products which needed a lot of product design love and a lot of kind of UX thinking and a lot of development. So the people who bought us needed a lot of the things that we did really well and that kind of stimulated me and the the team around us. So certainly as I went into that, I was open-minded to the fact that I may not be there forever, but I was similarly thinking if I just kind of, so I'll, I'll cash in that phase, I'll get a reward for that. And then I'll just see what the next bit brings. And I suppose, you know, I was, there was a lot of kind of ambitious organizations around at the time. So TalkSport would have been a sister company of UTV. They were really ambitious to kind of integrate, you know, their radio offering with a digital offering, which in 2023 is really quite mature. But in 2008, we were, a lot of us were finding our feet to an extent. There were a lot of interesting kind of portals. There was a car portal, a property portal, a recruitment portal, you know, all your standard portal stuff. So very kind of indicative of what the web was like around that period. But in amongst all that, we thought there's all this really interesting internal stuff to be getting on with, which we can help with. And then there's the bread and butter stuff, which is delivering, you know, web design software, hosting solutions for clients. So there's no lock-in whatsoever for me. But as it turns out, I stayed for maybe 18 or 20 months once I got in there. Okay, interesting. 
was there an earnout structure, or was it the case that you, as you just kind of got your cash on completion? Again, you know, I think by modern standards, the earnout was relatively modest overall. It's on public record, so you know, the, the business was sold for five million pounds. The deal structure was four million up front and a million earnout. The earnout period was only one year. The sort of growth bits that were wrapped into that were relatively modest. A lot of the earnout targets were based around integration. So as a deal, it would be untypically favourable to the seller, I think, by today's standards in terms of the amount of risk that the acquirer was taking on. But it was all relatively straightforward, actually. And I've never asked, but my view would be that when UTV bought the business, they certainly had planned that they would spend five million for it. I don't think they were thinking that we'll pay for four million and then we don't have to worry about the earnout. You know, the vast majority of the earnout was achieved and it was relatively straightforward. It was one year. Okay. I guess they're a publicly traded company and the way they will have capital to deploy for acquisitions, for them, I guess it makes sense because they have a publicly traded multiple so that any business they bring in then sort of almost instantly increases in value because it's then sort of trading at the parent company's multiple. So I guess for them, that just really makes sense. Yeah, I think so. That's not really a question. (laughs) And that sort of seeing our mathematics through the lens of the acquirer was a big part of how we thought about it at the time. But you're bang on, that's absolutely our experience, yeah. Okay, cool. So then you did sort of kind of nearly 18 months, two years. And then what did you go off and do after that? Well, I suppose maybe about nine to 12 months in, I sort of realised there's no implicit criticism of any, anything or body here, but, you know, there's no getting around it. You know, we were a relatively nimble, as nimble as a sort of a 55-person agency can be. Decisions were made fairly quickly, and the business had a history of making decisions in a relatively intense but quick way. I mean, I remember in the late 1990s, once again, I'm showing my age here, but in the late 1990s, you may remember that FreeServe came out, and FreeServe was the product launched by BT where you could get internet access for free. I remember. <laughs> yeah. So at the time you had to pay a tenner a month to get dial-up access, which is frightening by today's standards, but not, that's what it was. And then BT brought out this product where you could get access for free and they got a commission from the kind of phone line. So we saw them do that. And, you know, within a period of a week, you know, we went from, we're seeing them doing this. Could we do this in, with a sort of a Northern Irish and Irish focus? Is the market big enough? What do the miles look like? Can we afford the capital expense? Will we do it? And we did it. We gave it a go and we launched our version, which was called Club 24. And it was really successful. Really, really. It was a brilliant cash cow. And actually, it was a cash cow in the late 90s and into the early noughties when the general web market was all over the place. It became our banker for some of those tough years, 01, 02, 03. Anyway, so I'd gone from that environment Mm -hmm. of quick decision making. What weren't always the right decisions, far from it, but at least they were quick and everybody got behind them. And then all of a sudden you're in a, well, you're just in a PLC environment where people are used to working more slowly where budgets really are set in stone, where budgets get signed off through a conversation which typically goes, we see you're aiming for 22% growth in this revenue line. Could we make that 25? And arbitrarily, you kind of have to go, yes. So you're just in a very different world in terms of how decisions get made, how things get done. And I kind of just thought, look, I don't think I'm very good at this. I'm not patient enough. I don't know the language. You know, things are slowing down in terms of how quickly things get done. So it was time to move on. I joined actually very briefly for 18 months. I joined a digital strategy business, which is owned and run by a guy who's still a friend of mine, actually, and I'm I'm still doing business with him and for him, called Ionology. And digital strategy, so we're into sort of 2010, 2011, and digital strategy was just coming into view in terms of search engine optimization was maturing. 
a whole load of new social networks were coming along. Email was still knocking around. And organisations were just saying, oh, there's all this new stuff. How do we put it all together? So I went there on a sort of an interim management gig for that period. Okay. Tell me a bit about the UX agency. How did that come about? Well, that is more straightforward. That was 40th birthday was approaching. I'd had a good run. I felt I'd had a ringside seat with one successful disposal acquisition. And I just thought, look, I need to do this now for myself. And I reached the sort of very simple decision point that I went, I would rather try and fail than get to retirement and say, I wish I'd given it a go. So that little bit of logic just made me think, right, I'm going to give this a go. And in terms of UX, I was very fortunate because whilst UX only really got a name in the late noughties, you know, as a term, it didn't really exist before the 2000s. It turns out that right throughout my time running the web agency, the stuff that I was most interested in was the science of design and how human behavior and human motivation should influence design and how when you look at the worst designs on the web, they're typically designs that haven't thought about the users who need to interact with them. And they're usually about company ego and the whims of the board. So I was just interested in all those kind of the science of design and the humanization of design. And as I say, in the late noughties, this term started to emerge for what we call that. and It was called UX. So it was blossoming. You know, my perception of the market was that it was becoming increasingly valuable, that there were enough organizations doing it poorly to need it, that it was going to get a period where it was going to be valued by the market. So that was it. I set up the business in 2011, called it Fathom. And we kind of took the deliberate decision that we would only do UX. We wouldn't become a web agency. We wouldn't do any build. All we would do would be design strategy, design research, design output, those general areas. And some of the things that go with that, like knowledge share and training and maybe board engagement and stuff like that. But we were clear about where we wanted to sit in the market and what we wanted to do. And so it was born. Okay, so you set this business up with a very clear intention to build something to sell. I certainly set it up with the intention to build and I was reasonably relaxed about the fact that it would be sold one day. You know, when I sat down to plan a specific year, I never thought, okay, I'm starting a three-year gig now, which is going to end in an acquisition. In my head, I thought the day would come. I hoped the day would come where it would be sold. But it was just in the back of my head. It wasn't a 10-year plan or anything like that. But I had a sense that if I got it right, and built the thing correctly, that at some stage it would be attractive for somebody to come and acquire. Okay, great. So talk to me a bit about how the growth and the history of the company and how it developed. So up and on in 2011, actually the first six to seven years growth was predictable, regular, solid. I go back to the fact that my old chairman kept good commercial manners on me. And most years, both revenue and profit grew about anything between 25 and 35%. So very typical agency trajectory for someone who set it up by themselves, you know, year one, 100 grand, you know, year two, 175, 250, 300, you know, and within four or five years, you're hitting half a million and you're fairly confident. So by about year six, seven, we were turning over just shy of a million and with good margin and all that good stuff. The first number of years, growth was good, not spectacular, but founded all based on profit, all funded from profit. And I certainly... As the guy who kept the close eye on numbers, I always felt the place was very commercially healthy. But there were a couple of things that were happening under the surface there that I just was always quite aware of. One was that I thought that owning and running a UX agency was going to be really quite similar to owning and running a web agency. And when I finished up in the web agency, our recurring revenue, or what we called predictable revenue, was around 65 to 70%. And we defined recurring revenue as revenue that the client was contractually obliged to give you. And we called predictable revenue. 
So the web agency world had a lot of really predictable and recurring revenue, which gave you a really solid foundation. And the UX world just wasn't like that. You really were going from project to project. And of course, you would have good client relationships. So we would have done a lot of work, for instance, with 3Mobile or with Tesco Mobile, did a lot with some of the big banks here in Ireland. And they would spend again and they would spend again. But they didn't have the same compelling reason to continue to spend with you the same way that if you built someone's website and they wanted a new section, they were going to come back to you to build it. There just wasn't that same compelling reason. So we found that we had to work much harder or I had to work much harder in UX world for recurring revenue than we did in web world. So that was one of the things that we observed. And the other thing that I felt was relevant commercially was that our revenue as the years went on was made up of a smaller number of larger value contracts. And I can't remember the exact numbers from Tybus, but Tybus was turning over maybe 2.2, 2.3 million quid by the time I finished. You know, your average project size would maybe have been 10 to 15 grand. You know, fast forward to Fathom, that million quid turnover, you know, you could have had a couple of 250 grand projects in there. So the makeup of the revenue was really quite different, which meant that the team was either very intensely invested in a couple of big projects or the workload occasionally could feel a little bit light. So there's a little bit more peaks and troughs. Those were two big commercial things that I was always aware of and wanted to get on top of. But the business was growing at some great senior folks along the way. I was blessed that, you know, at a couple, two or three UX directors, head of UX, who were great. A couple of folks on the commercial side who were really strong. And where we kind of ended up in terms of growth, Barnaby, we'd built a really good engine where my sort of commercial lead and UX lead, practice lead, could kind of run virtually at most things, you know, 99% of the business. And I was just out winning new business all the time. So that's kind of where we ended up. And maybe just to close the story off, we started the plateau after year seven. So I had thought we were kind of on a trajectory to a million, a million and a half, two million. I thought that's where we were going. And actually, if you look at years seven, eight, nine, profit remained really healthy, but turnover plateaued. I think we grew every year for our life, 2%, 3%, 2%, but there was a very definite plateau there. So that's how growth worked. That's where profit came from. But you can see that the dynamics of the business commercially as we got towards acquisition, they were unquestionably changing and they were changing in a pretty discernible way. While I've got you here, I just wanted to let you know a little bit about me. After having acquired a TV commercials production company earlier this year, I'm currently doing a roll-up in the video production space and I'm looking for production companies to join my group. If you don't think you're quite there yet, I'm also spending some of my time advising smaller businesses on business growth and exit planning. So if you want to chat to me about that, drop me a line on LinkedIn. Here endeth the advert. Okay, so how did the acquisition then come about? Were you approached? So we were approached initially, so we almost sold in 2019. And when I say almost sold, we were standing at the altar. We were waiting for the groom to say, I do. And he fluffed his lines and didn't say, I do. And I mean, to give you, to let you know how close we were, we had an office plan done. We had car parking spaces with people's names beside them. We had a nine month integration plan. We really were. And the potential acquirer pulled out. And that had come about actually just through a couple of casual conversations. And that really was a sort of a knock on the door is how I would describe that. But certainly when that fell through, I realized that the seed had been planted and I now was a bit more deliberately wanting to sell. I, I think my disappointment that that didn't go through just kind of told me something. Okay, Garth, you're now ready to get a bit more proactive about this. And there's a couple of light touch marketplaces. I sense you want to ask a question there, Barnaby, so I'll, I'll stop. No, I was just wondering why the deal fell through. Because I guess the acquirer will have spent quite a lot of money and quite a lot of time on putting the deal together. 
So it's quite unusual for it to fall at the final hurdle. Yeah, it really was. It really was close. You know, I've actually stayed close with all the guys with whom it nearly happened. And I think there's a number of things going on, some of which I knew at the time and some of which I subsequently found out. The main thing was that I think a number of folks on the board had the perspective that the company who were going to acquire us were ambitious to fight on too many fronts and the purchase of us was just another front. I thought it was interesting because and you'd expect me to be biased here because I'm the UX guy, but that organisation would have had of the order of 300 to 350 employees and they would have had two or three working on anything that you might call either the interface or experience design. So certainly looking in from the outside, I was thinking, number one, that ratio was definitely wrong and unreflective of where the market is going. And number two, those two or three poor resources in an environment where design just doesn't have its place at the table. So I certainly felt that it was probably legitimate that they were fighting on a lot of fronts, but I was thinking of all the fronts you might step back from, don't let UX be one of them. The other thing actually that I learned subsequently was that business itself was acquired the following year. And I just wonder, might they have felt that was a distraction? So I think there's just a bit of bad luck involved. You know, there was no big falling out. I think just there was lots of other things happening and we maybe just felt noise in the middle of it. Okay. I mean, I guess the other thing is you then had a deal structure in place from that potential inquirer that you were comfortable with. So I suppose in terms of then going out to look for another buyer, you're already kind of quite familiar. I mean, it's already your sort of second time anyway, but you're already quite familiar with what your valuation is, what you can expect to get from it. So that whole process just becomes quite a bit easier because you've done a lot of that intellectual work. Yeah, I think so. And maybe intellectual and emotional work in a sense. Again, I think what's yeah. probably interesting in hindsight is the upfront bit of the 2019 deal wasn't as good as the upfront of the deal which ultimately went through two years later. But actually in the 2019 deal, I was reasonably comfortable taking on relatively ambitious growth targets because as I say I was looking at this 350 person business I was looking at their client list I myself had a good sense of the noises that we were getting from our clients about the role that UX was playing and I was thinking I have a team that I can roll in here if I do anything right that team should be doubling over at least 12 18 24 months so the ultimate values of the deals were very similar the structures ultimately ended up being a little bit different because as I say one was going to bring a load of clients who needed UX to the table and the others were kind of in a different space. Okay, so talk to me about the second and eventually successful deal. How was that put together? Well, actually, I have to bring our mutual friend Ian Harris into this. Ah, okay. So you may or may not remember this, and I'm not sure if you were involved with Agency Hackers at this time, but around the time, Ian launched this little pilot thing which he called M&A Sundays. So the thinking was business owners and people who want to acquire business kind of think about this stuff sometimes at the weekends. And so he launched this little email newsletter that would arrive on a Sunday morning when you're maybe having your cup of coffee. And it was a kind of a matching ground for people who might be interested in selling and people who might be interested in buying. And so you would give him a kind of an anonymous company profile and people who are interested in a company that matched that profile would get in touch. So I did that. I sent the profile through to Ian and that was kind of the first match that we then got with our ultimate acquirers who are, lo and behold, so I got speaking to their CEO, Darren, who ultimately would become my boss for 18 months, and their chairman at the time, James, who was the guy who was making all the corporate stuff work. So we chatted in the summer of 2020, middle of COVID. So first of all, they articulated the hypothesis of the problem they were wanting to solve. So 
I'm not sure how ingrained you are in the crazy vocabulary of user experience, but this idea that life is a hypothesis and that businesses are there to solve problems, this is bread and butter to a UX guy. So they were talking this sort of language that I could get. And, and so the problem they were trying to solve was it's very difficult for organizations who are large and have large communications needs, it's very difficult for them to get a integrated set of services unless they buy from a massive agency in the center of London with all the costs and all the paraphernalia that, that connects with that. And so their hypothesis was that if they could build a distributed team of experts, they could mimic that experience, that big agency experience, but they could do it on a regional basis, on a distributed basis, and potentially on a basis that either was lower cost to a client or higher margin to the agency, or hopefully both, if we got it right. So that was the vision. They were, they were looking for specialists who were turning over between one and two million pounds, and they wanted to bring a team of experts together. So the conversation started that summer. I thought the vision was coherent, and that was fine. So we kind of, we agreed that we would just let it percolate, we would stay in touch. And there was a couple of things that happened towards the end of that year. I saw, because I'd kept in touch with them, that they had bought some of the agencies that that summer they had said they were thinking of buying. So I thought, okay, well, these guys, they kind of do what they say they're going to do. We kind of had a couple of conversations in December that ratcheted it up pretty quickly. And I suppose for me, the thing that made me say, right, we're going to get serious here was after one of the conversations, they sent me a letter of offer and they said, look, Gareth, this isn't a letter of offer, but if we were to send you a letter of offer, this is what it would look like. And I think their message to me was, Garth, we're really serious here. We appreciate you're probably going to want to do a beauty parade. You're going to want to speak to others and we understand all that. But if you're going to be dealing with us, this is how we do stuff. And I suppose that letter of offer kind of said to me, okay, Garth, we're really not messing around here. You know, let us know soon enough if we want to go a bit further. So as I headed into Christmas 2020, I was emotionally ready to give this a good go. I think this is always interesting for my listeners is how the deal was structured and how you agreed upon evaluation. Can you talk about that? I'll share with you what I knew and what I did, and then I'll share with you what I kind of learned, because hopefully that'll be relevant to your listeners. So a couple of things that I hope are relevant to listeners. So it's maybe just worth mentioning. I'll mention a couple of other market things, and then I'll promise you I'll, I'll get to your question, Barnaby. So in the market, a number of things were happening and were relevant. The growth of my business had plateaued. There had been a reasonable amount of M&A activity with businesses that looked like mine and did my services in UK, in Ireland, in the States. And there had been a number of what you might call untypical acquisitions. In other words, UX agencies weren't just getting bought by other agencies. They were getting bought by consultancies such as Ernst & Young. They were getting bought by banks such as Capital One. So the person who was acquiring was changing. But on the flip side of the coin, UX was becoming a little bit commoditized. And by that, what I mean is it was becoming increasingly difficult for clients to understand. So the client who knows a little bit about UX looking for a UX partner it was getting increasingly difficult for them to know if the person they were speaking to actually knew about UX or if they were just one chapter ahead of them in the textbook. And that was the first time that had happened in my 12 years. In 2011, there were just far fewer people who could articulate the world of UX coherently. And if they were bluffers, they would get found out. And that was changing. So the marketplace was changing. Final other comment, and then I'll get to the valuation bit. The other thing that I think, again, I hope was useful or relevant to your listeners is I engaged the services of an M&A specialist and I was very direct with them because I said, look, whilst I'm very proud of my business, I'm under no illusion as to what it is. It is a £1 million turnover, 12-person professional services business with a load of good clients and a really good track record and no IPR. So I get what I'm dealing with here, you know, 
am I big enough and will I be interesting enough for you guys to make sure that you've got the right people in the deal and you'll give me the time and all the rest. And they were pretty clear that UX was enjoying just a period in the sun. And I remember at one stage, one of them said to me, Gareth, if you came to me and you had, let's say, a PPC agency with those numbers and those clients, we wouldn't take you on. But because you're a UX agency and because of what's happening in the market, we're going to take you on. So there's all this stuff happening in the market that's telling me that the valuation is really important, but there's all this other stuff going on. You know, if I can liken it to a game of cards, I just think it's really good to know the hand of cards you're holding and to be really clear with yourself and honest with yourself about what it is. So that's all the background. But ultimately, actually, the deal was really simple. I liked its simplicity. It had no earn out and it was 50% cash and 50% shares. And so the negotiation was, okay, we're going to do this on EBIT. So let's negotiate around the EBIT multiple. Okay, that's done. Once that's done, we're going to pay you 50% cash, 50% shares. We then had a bit of negotiation around you know, when I would get the cash and when the shares would be realizable. And then there was a final bit of negotiation around, there's a little bit, I'm not even going to call it an earn out, I'm going to call it a year one bonus. And actually that was really valuable because that amount actually paid for all of my professional fees during the thing. So it was a nice little bounce. So there was the headline, that was how we got to it. But there's a few little pieces of negotiation below that that were really, really useful, particularly things that they got that year one, that year one bonus. Okay. And what was the valuation multiple? 5.5 is where we ended up based on uh, EBITDA. Okay. That's pretty strong. I think that sounds like you got a good deal. Yeah. And I had a very clear no regrets policy. You know, the sort of the mind game I played or the sort of the, the way that I framed it was if we do the deal on day one and I never see another penny, will I regret it? And I needed to make sure the answer to that question was no before I did the deal. That was just another decision-making thought in my head. Okay, so then after completion, so 50% of the consideration was in shares in the parent company. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Because I think I heard you say earlier that you stayed for about a year and a half. So what's happened to your equity in that parent company now? It's still there. I should say I've stepped out of day-to-day when I was there, I was chief digital officer. So I actually ended up looking after the UX team, but also the software development team. Happily now, we've got a cracking software director because I was a software director once upon a time and boy, was I rusty. So if you're a software director in 1998, that's very, very different to being a 25 years out of shapes, having programmed a 20 years one. So I was a bad software director for 18 months. There's a new software director in now who's doing a cracking job. And actually one of the team who worked for me when I was there, She's now UX director. So it's great. So they're now running that, that division. I'm kind of a roving midfielder, which means I'm out of the exact team, but I help with bits and pieces. So funny, just this morning, before I come on the call here, I finished a proposal for them that I'm helping with a wee bit of biz dev. And there's another deal that they're chasing. I'm doing a wee bit there. So I'm still involved and actually it's very enjoyable. I'm still chasing deals, which I love doing, but without the pressure of all the sales and, and stuff like that. The shares are still there, but I'm out of the day-to-day. Are you still employed or are you working as a consultant now? As a consultant. And I am a time okay. we, we bill every month, yeah. And can you just talk to me a little bit about the integration since you sold for the rest of the team, how that went? As an integration challenge now, it couldn't have been more difficult. What I mean by that is they went ahead and bought the five agencies they said they were going to do. So we arrived into this new world of five agencies coming together, all of similar sizes, all with their own cultures. But wrapped into that, you had your own technologies. So we had some Microsoft houses and we had some Google houses. We were a Google house, but there were some Microsoft houses. So that was a pretty 
big gig. You know, you had a software team who logged all their time on Jira. That was connected through directly to billing. And the software team had this really efficient billing mechanism that contracts they had with their customers were such that any time a programmer logged a piece of time on their timesheet, that fled all the way through to an invoice. That was really efficient. But that's really good for a software team, but it's not going to work for a creative and brand team. And then you just had different systems, you know, so different systems for project management, different systems for timesheets and so on. So there was a big upheaval. There's no getting around it. There was a very big upheaval. We ultimately moved to Microsoft. It was an upheaval for us on the UX team, but it was massive for the dev team because they were broadly a Google house. They had everything running on Google. And so it was a big upheaval for them. So it was a 15 to 18 month job to get, which is crazy when you think that really we're only talking about 60 to 75 people. But it was a big job to get everybody moved on to the new system. Okay, great. I guess it's just looking back on your various experiences of selling businesses. What advice have you got for people who are at the beginning of their journey who are just starting to think about preparing their business for a sale? One of the questions that you asked me earlier, I get asked quite a bit, when you set up your business, did you set it up to sell it? And whilst I understand the relevance of the question, I think particularly for agency owners or The way that I would put it, I think particularly if you own either all or most of an agency whose growth is funded by profit, I really think you can do both at the same time. I think the mechanics of growing and running a really good agency because you want to run it for the rest of your days or the mechanics of growing and running a really good agency because you want an acquisition event, I think those are 99% the same thing. And, you know, for me, I suppose I'm relatively old school. I always kept a Even simple things like I wouldn't have taken the mick on expenses. The books were always really, really clean. I wouldn't have messed around with director's loans and stuff that I didn't need to. You know, I always treated this business like a separate thing to me. It was this limited company and I served it as I was at CEO and I served it rather than it it served me. And I always took the view that as and when an acquirer came knocking, that I would have no problems once we'd signed an NDA, I would have no problems just saying, here's a link to get access to our accounts. Here's our zero. Just go in and have a look around. I wanted the place to be so cleanly run that I could do that. And the message to everybody would be like, this place is, this is as clean as a whistle. So I think that was the big one for me. I think my hygiene was always really good. You know, I was always really clear on the commercials. There very definitely was purpose behind the business. And I feel very passionately that to this day, the web is still not designed anywhere near as well as it should be. And it's far harder to use for most users and it should be. And as a result of that, organizations are missing out on lots of opportunities. So I still haven't lost that underlying belief that drove us. But it was really clear that I wasn't going to run a business that was going to be unprofitable or that would bump along or that would be an ego project. I was very clear that the business, it needs to turn over a certain amount. It needs to have a margin levels that relate to that. It needs to generate cash. And yes, you're going to have good years and bad. The market's going to fluctuate, but you have to build this engine that generates money. So I think when you put all those things together, how I went about running the place and what a potential acquirer might want to see, I think those things were quite closely aligned. And I think that's what I would say to anybody starting out in the journey. Just get really good at your hygiene, get on top of your numbers, be clear where your profit's coming from, focus on your high value customers, identify your customers that you're losing money on. You know, it all sounds like basics, forgive me, but all that stuff allows you to build a really healthy culture and a healthy commercial performance will follow that. Brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on. No problem. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. From next week, I'm going to be introducing an M&A Q&A section to the podcast. So if you've got any questions that you'd like answered, 
drop me a line on LinkedIn or send me an email on barnaby at foxcogroup.com and I'll make sure that your question gets answered in a future episode. I'm also planning some live events in 2024, bringing together experts in the M&A space and the Exit Plan community. So if you're interested in early access to those, follow the Exit Plan podcast page on LinkedIn and sign up to our mailing list. I've left a link for that in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do leave us a review. It really helps other people find us. And if you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, drop me a line.